This is an RNZ podcast. The Supreme Court has ruled Sir James Wallace can now be named for indecently assaulting three young men and twice trying to bribe one of them to withdraw their complaint. Charges were first laid against someone described only as a prominent businessman in 2017. That was RNZ News at 7am last Thursday after the identity of the knighted Rich Lister convicted a long time ago had finally been made public. Now his identity was described by many in the media as a worst kept secret and on Morning Report shortly after that RNZ's Mark Amory told host Ingrid Hipkiss plenty of people did know the name that the courts had suppressed. I mean we're talking two years ago when James Wallace, I was one of many who received an email that went through where he actually personally by name went out pleading for letters of support to try and uh, ensure that he didn't go into prison. Um, this at a time when he was under name suspicion, that was incredibly painful for a lot of people in the arts how, community. How did people react to that request? A horror, as far as I'm aware. But as Mark Amory went on to explain, plenty of supporters of the many arts organisations and events that Sir James Wallace supported as a patron and as a benefactor would have been shocked by the news on Wednesday. Now the revelation of a long suppressed name in this way always prompts strong questions in the media about the fairness of name suppression itself and it's been no different this time. And as Mark Amory also pointed out, Such was the level of Sir James' financial input into the arts that this development also raises significant questions about the funding of the arts, though that's not the aspect making headlines this past week. Now, coincidentally, how and how often the arts do get covered in our media had also been on Mark Amory's mind lately. But this week, in his final column for the paper now known as The Post, which was written before the name of Sir James Wallace was revealed, Mark Amory reflected on how the arts are covered these days. Like journalism, the arts ask us to consider other perspectives. Both our differences and commonalities become more visible. In the media, we need to report on it then with care, something we currently struggle to resource. Now, as the numbers of journalists and editors have dropped, arts media roles have also been the first to go, Mark Amory wrote, and the impact of that was shown in a new report out this week, which was commissioned by Creative New Zealand after a suggestion from Mark Amory. Visibility Matters is a survey of arts and culture coverage, reporting and artist portrayal in New Zealand media in the year ended June 2022 and it was carried out by the media research company Icentia. Now they found that 25% of our media coverage is about sport, whereas only 13% of media coverage covers arts and culture and three quarters of that is driven by stuff about TV, film and music. The report summed up the media coverage as diluted, and sparse. And they also found that coverage most commonly focuses on current or upcoming events, which is good for promotion of some arts and artists, but not others. And it also means there's lots of preview, but not so much review. Now that analysis also found that while international artists were more likely to be covered, and two-thirds of those, by the way, are male, some communities were completely underrepresented in arts and culture coverage. And when Anna Fifield took over the Dominion Post back in October 2020, she told MediaWatch she'd bump up the amount of arts coverage and creativity. I think a lot of that coverage has kind of slipped away since the the great days of Tom Cardi writing in the Evening Post that I remember from my university and and early career. So I would like to uh, look for ways that we can increase arts and culture coverage in 
the Dominion Post and on staff online to kind of, yeah, better reflect all of what Wellington is. To that end, she took on Mark Amory as a critic and contributing arts editor, and the current editor, Caitlin Cherry, has expanded the coverage in the paper. Now, the reason that Mark Amory is now parting ways with The Post is that he's got a new gig here at RNZ, producing and presenting a new Sunday afternoon show all about the arts for RNZ National. And he'll be doing that alongside Perlina Lau, currently presenting RNZ National's World Watch. But she is also well known as a creator, producer and actor, most notably with the hit TV comedy series Creamery. Well, we'll ask Mark more about the new show in a minute, also that question of whether arts criticism itself is in trouble these days. In an earlier column published in The Post, Mark Amory said critics were part of the problem too because, in the majority, criticism remains the preserve of older Pākehā men like himself. But first I asked Mark Amory if that news about Sir James Wallace poses questions that they now need to confront. A couple of years ago I went to my editor at The Post, Anna Fifield. James Wallace had been filmed by the TV One News, you know, leaving uh, an APO, the Philharmonia Orchestra performance at the, the town hall, and he couldn't be identified. I, I went to Anna and I said, look, we just need to write about this. We don't need to name him. This name suppression thing is really, yeah, it's really painful and it's really hurting people. And it was like quite clearly it was off the agenda for us to even go close to it so that it might even be guessed that it was him. It was enormously painful. The rules around name suppression need to be looked at. Of course there are reasons for it and good reasons for it. But, you know, what was it, 2019 when the media started to push for it here? It's continued to be appealed and appealed and appealed. And meanwhile, this guy's been going out openly to the community and asking for letters of support to keep himself out of jail. I just want to emphasise the pain and the hurt and the shame, actually, that's been felt through the arts community. I mean, it reminds me of the Weinstein moment as well, that we, we all knew that, there was dodgy stuff going on or we sensed it. I mean, I didn't know stuff directly, but, you know, everyone sensed there was something awful about what was going on, but the sense of money and power and the, the way the art world works sort of it suppressed it. We made us own silence, and I think there's a great shame in that. So the name suppression really, really um, enforced that, I think. It's made it very uncomfortable. But for people who are covering the arts specifically, I mean, he was a major benefactor. This is an yes. issue that will have to be looked at. Journalists who cover the arts and want to concentrate on the artistic endeavour, the creation, are now going to have to confront some pretty difficult issues about power and money. I I think that's good. I mean, I think there's a lot of silence for artists um, where they don't want to bite the hand that feeds. And, I mean, there's a very interesting tension in the arts, isn't there, between where the money comes from privately. And often it comes from, uh, particularly in the last few decades, a sort of, you know, what I call a hyper-capitalist neoliberal model, which is the very thing that has stripped artists from some of their basic income. If they can play the consumer market, they're going to be treated much better than if they can try and work for the public good. Well, and there was some interesting research by Creative New Zealand about how artists make money, and in some cases how little they make, even yes. if they're prominent in their field, uh, which was of some interest to the media. But another report out this week about the level of attention and space given to uh, arts and different kinds of arts and different kinds of people creating the arts. This was actually something that you suggested, wasn't it? The Creative New Zealand report, uh, Visibility Matters, that came out this week. I did, and I was quite inspired by the work that was done around uh, women in sports and media coverage. I thought, why aren't we having a conversation about the arts and the media in a, in a really considered way where we actually look at a breakdown of what's being covered and how and the mechanisms and what's missing and what's absent. And, and, and the same media monitoring company 
doing it, Icentia, that did those reports on, yeah, on yeah. Uh, women in sport. Yeah, so there's another report underway now, which is to look at what is happening and what the constraints are and what could be possibly done about it. So that's to come. But this report is really interesting in terms of just letting us look at what coverage there is. Um, you know, the, the basic fact that sport gets a quarter of the media coverage in this country, the arts gets 13%, and then... When you take TV, film, and music, i.e., the kind of entertainment side of things, it goes down to four or five percent next to that twenty-five percent of yeah, sports that's, that's interest. Three quarters, isn't it? Film, television, music. Three quarters, three of, the, quarters. Of, of that. That thirteen percent of of media space. When it's a consumer item, when it's a film, when it's a, a it's an album, where there is a PR industry behind it. When it's an event, when it's an arts festival, particularly when there is the resource to put publicists behind things, you get a lot of coverage of the arts. But the arts in terms of thinking about the issues, uh, the arts in terms of those who are less represented and particularly the up-and-coming artists and that work of significance, there's nobody in the newsrooms. There are no arts editors, well, there's very few, and there's very few arts journalists who've got any resource or time to really go out there and find out what's really significant for our country. Well, one of the findings here, arts and culture coverage, quoting from the report, most commonly focuses on news about current or upcoming events. While this is beneficial for the promotion of arts and artists, it can create imbalances on forms of art and culture that are less event-driven. So is this the phenomenon we see elsewhere in the media, perhaps, uh, other kinds of events? So too much preview, not enough review and real critical Yeah, I mean, I think it also disables a whole different sort of thinking about the arts. You know, we're very comfortable with putting it in a box as a consumer item, as, you know, like a painting, Mm -hmm. something that is sold. And, And, of course, the media love it when something sells for a record amount of money at auction. But when we look at Toy Marty, we look at the arts, or the Pacific arts, far more collective interdisciplinary, uh, part of a culture, a part of a way of life. Unless it's to Matatini, which we're seeing some wonderful coverage of, I think it is really, really disadvantaged because it doesn't fit those boxes. So I think in the media, and I hope this is something we can do at Radio New Zealand with our arts and culture strategy that I know is being developed here and with a new show, is I think we need to kind of unbox the arts and think about it more as a culture and a way of life because actually that's a very strong part of what makes our culture in New Zealand distinctive. Mm. So just some stats on that from the report, seeing as you mentioned it. The Visibility Matter report says about 10% of all media items on arts and culture contained references to Māori arts or Ngātoi Māori, uh, followed by 5% for Pacific arts and culture and artists, and 2% for what they just call New Zealand Asian arts as the category. What does that reveal to you, those statistics? Well, I mean, the Asian arts... Uh, statistic is particularly glaring. 2.3% of the population is somewhere around 15% in New Zealand. There's an incredible new generation of Asian practitioners in the arts, as we saw with the Pacific Island, you know, the kind of Oscar Kiteley generation in the 90s. We're now seeing that with with the Asian area. But what it tells us is that we, 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 we don't have diverse enough people in our newsrooms. And I mean, that's that's no surprise, but you know, where are the Māori critics, the Māori editors, the Māori journalists, um, and particularly when it comes to the arts? We really seriously need this because I think there's some natural, you know, it, it's naturally difficult to deal with something that's not your common ground, it's not your cultural ancestry. But we need to, so, but we need to both bring in those voices more into our into our shows and into our newspapers. But we need them in our newsrooms.
Well, as you mentioned there, people need the time to be able to do it because uh, journalists are often doing this as a bit of a sideline. Uh, Andre Chumko, former colleague at The Post, yes. uh, the byline I think most picked out, but of course he's got news duties to do as well. And then when they do a little bar chart of the nature of it, you see that event-driven coverage being pretty prominent across different forms of art. It's all broken down. But the little bar on the chart for what they've labelled nuanced criticism or deeper analysis <laughs> is really small. Is that a factor of what you said there, that actually the arts coverage is not a dedicated special detail? Well, more? first of all, let's be clear. I mean, we've seen a decimation of our media over the last 20 years that doesn't just affect the arts. So it affects like local sports, for example, or, or it affects investigative journalism. And I think the thing is that the arts are nuanced. They are complex if they're not boxed in within an event that's easy to, to do a light once over. So they do require resources that are being cut all across the media. So I think, I, I, w- I don't want us to get into this point that the arts don't matter. I think it's that the media matters and that the media has something of a crisis on, it, on its hands. But in f- other forms of journalism, uh, the internet, so what you're talking about, yes, the, the constriction, the, 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 the shrinkage of established news media outlets and their resources and their scope and range and all of that stuff, but the internet has opened it up. For example, yes. when they had the, for what it's worth, the Voyager Awards this year, Best Reviewer Prize, Rachel King, Steve Braunius, yes. runner-up, Rachel King, winner, both of them for Newsroom, an online native yes. digital startup. Um, so the internet has opened up things for all areas of journalism. Uh, there must be outlets that are filling that void for the people who are really interested. Well, I don't think they... I mean, OK, it's it's slightly complex. So Newsroom is a great example. Steve Braunius has run a really great um, area there for the literary community. Uh, the spin-off has done really, really great work. They even have a pop culture section. There's people like Sam Brooks, uh, arts journalist at the spin-off, who's been doing great work for years. So there's little pockets. And then we have um, a raft of amazing online platforms like Pantograph Punch. It's it's a wonderful thing, but it's it's kind of segregated. Meanwhile, arts criticism has been totally, generally blindsided. So all of these senior arts reviewers have set up platforms in the last 10 years that run on the smell of an oily rag. So, you know, in theatre, we have John Smythe with Theatre Review. Jen, James Wenley, a, a younger critic, runs a fantastic cycle theatre scenes. You have Graham Reed continuing to write for The Listener, but he's got his own music website. You've got John Hurrell with Eye Contact, which is a wonderful place for the visual arts. But they just battle on, as like Braunius does, to bring lots of non-ageing male <laughs> you know, white voices through, but they do so without a lot of support. So it's very difficult for them. And ultimately what we see is their byline many, many more times than anybody else. The internet, seeing as we spoke about it, there was actually something you addressed in another recent column in the Post. You wrote, um, even the word criticism now seems a bit anachronistic. (laughs) And you specified that there was this growth of a kind of social digital culture that just hasn't helped that. Why not? Well, I think we all probably thought that with the internet that's for the arts that this diversification was going to empower us to reach more people. But of course, as we've seen with things like Facebook, it's part of the sort of market forces and you tend to get these little clubs. I mean, you know, we're now in a situation or have been for many years that artists have to crowdfund for their work and the same people, the same community of friends are often the first to put their money in. They don't necessarily get the spread that you might expect by just suddenly putting you up on the internet. Journalists are having 
having to do that too. Ones that used to be published in papers are now having to self-publish. And yeah, well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's not just an arts issue. You know, if we want to support good journalism, we're having to actually crowdfund and and, and create separate, um, you know, Substack and the like kind of platforms. So they've kind of erupted, and that's great, and it's really healthy. But I think the public media has abdicating some responsibility, particularly in terms of criticism, in terms of the fact that the arts demand conversation. They demand different viewpoints. And I think we are really scared of criticism at the moment because it has this um, older male critic kind of uh, singular authority uh, legacy to it. So this is the thing you think that makes it seem old-fashioned? Yeah, very much old-fashioned. And I think we need to reinvent it, essentially. and, And what I say in my column this week is that I think there's an opportunity for the media to actually use the arts to bring in more critical voices, more conversation that involves all sorts of different people, uh, because I think people love opinion. I think people still love to hear, you know, a really robust critical discussion about why this exhibitional piece of musical play, you know, the latest Taylor Swift album or, or the latest Troy Kingy album is, is not as good as the last one or is better or why, and we can have a great discussion about it. Culture thrives on those kinds of conversations, but they, they will only thrive if there are many voices. Meanwhile, and I think this is something you're alluding to at the moment, uh, we're, we're in a culture at the moment where there's, there's, there's what we call the culture wars going on. There's, there's a feeling that writers need to defend the artists that they represent so that Māori writers need to, rep, you know, to a certain degree need to, to both promote and explain the work of their peers. But I think we need to still get to a place in a healthy culture where we can have many more of those voices that can both platform and critique. Mark, what about the sort of distance you have to have as a critic from you know, people you perhaps know Makes it harder, doesn't it, to be genuinely critical of people you know? Yeah, it's an economy of scale, obviously. If you're in New York, it's not really an issue. When when we thought that social media was going to be our saviour, I mean, I guess we're forgetting that the word social, and social is friends groups, and really you're talking about clubs, little clubs of people talking. And when you're in a little club, you don't dare speak up. You certainly don't dare to speak up in a considered way directly to the face of the people that you associate with, which is often artists. So it is really, really difficult. Um, I mean, I was just remembering that back in the 1990s when, you know, I was theatre reviewing a lot and I'd moved to Wellington. There were like five or six of us, you know, and we'd go to the theatre openings and you would be in a corner talking about the show. But I remember the British Council brought over the legendary Guardian theatre critic Michael Billington and uh, we did a workshop with him and he was astonished literally astonished that we would even dare to think of hanging around after the opening night for the drinks afterwards to mingle with the cast and and the other people. He was scurrying off to do his review and to keep that critical distance. I live up in Pikeagree half an hour up the coast from from Wellington. It's kind of handy because it means I've often got to rush back home. But there is a point where it's good as a critic and a journalist to be able to go home and keep a bit of distance. So when you mentioned social media and you referred to a a digital social culture that has not in the post in your column that has not fostered genuine or deep critical thought. Are you meaning that social media satisfies people's desires for quick hot takes on things, including the arts and pieces of artistic work, and, and that 
is uh, you know enough to keep people happy, and well, that diminishes a, the appetite for something. It's a that funny might one because you say quick hot takes. Away. Because I mean, I thought, oh yay, we're going to have quick hot takes. Who are going to go? Oh, I, I I watched this film. I hated it. Even like a block Hollywood blockbuster. But they don't generally. We we share our love of things. Um, but when we have the hot takes, are generally positive, or they're also the opposite. They're just really flaming things and we don't get the thing in the middle I, th- I always had three kind of rules as a critic which I just would say over and over is is first of all be honest you know if, if, if you come to the end of a piece of writing and you haven't really said what you really feel you're in problems be constructive if there's something good in what you've seen say it and and, and be generous you know just find that find those things but but above all, above all, probably be honest. I don't think people necessarily have those rules in their head when they're writing a tweet. Well, you directly confronted that uh, in a post column back in April on not cancelling criticism culture yeah. was the title. You put it out on social media uh, with the, the challenge, if we're not careful, arts criticism will die with ageing Pakeha men like me. Discuss. What was the reaction? I had two different reactions. I had older male critics defending themselves, mm-hmm. um, and and there's many of us, and doing amazing work. I mean, this is the thing, doing remarkable work and against the odds trying to bring in new voices. <clears throat> but it remains that the industry is dominated by said voices, and I'm one of them in terms of having the editorial reins. And so it's not really their responsibility to change that. Again, it really lies with, with the mainstream media in terms of who we employ and how we do things. Anyway. Well, because you, but, sorry to interrupt you, but when you joined the Don Post, you insisted on writing as, as often as you wrote that someone else, not to like you, yeah. uh, should, should write. Well, you kind of get sick of the sound of your own voice <laughs> after a while you know and I and it, it just I just it was just my instinct that we just I mean I'm passionate about the arts I'm passionate about the way it does um, bring a diversity of different voices and I'm passionate about the media and the way it does it so for me it was about bringing artists voices and bringing different voices why is it the male voices that seem to be so prodigious this I sent you report sort of shows us that there is huge number of women writing in the media um, about the arts, but when you look at actually how much content is being um, created, it's guys like myself um, who are, pu- are just pushing out the content all of the time, who feel comfortable in taking up space, and they're being well-meaning and they're, they are pushing for the arts, but I think we need to kind of acknowledge that. Now that you have the opportunity, the Sunday program beginning uh, in August... Um, unnamed yes. this year, I believe? No, it's still in the think tank. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> yourself and Perlina Lau will be yes. co-hosting, co-producing. What do you hope that you will do differently that might achieve some of the things, some of the things pointed to in this report as being undercovered? Oh, well, doing it with Polina for one thing, is is really remarkable. I think what the show needs is, is a diversity of voices. And, you know, Polina is, is going to be in Auckland. I think um, the media... has been very Wellington-centric around the arts often. So that's really important. She's... Um, a little bit younger than me, and she comes from a film and television background as well as an extraordinary uh, amount of experience at the BBC and RNZ. I think I'm really looking forward to a bit more of a live sense of conversation, and that conversation will extend to the listener as well. I mean, again, uh, Lynn Freeman, Simon Morris did an amazing job of, you know, defending an area and keeping it going for 20 years. As I said, I believe there's an arts and culture strategy that's underway. It's nothing to do with me. It's being done by the organisation, and that is progressive. This is a really exciting time for RNZ to actually kind of really rethink how we treat the arts as intrinsic to our way of life. And as well as being 
on the air. We will be shortly. Um, you're a publishing mogul, aren't you? Uh, recently, a new newspaper, Kotereo uh, Onatangata, The People's Voice, a newspaper created with uh, housing tenants um, here in Porniki, where we're speaking now. Well, that's a public art project. So I've got a background in public art as well as public media. I see the two things as very commonly entwined in terms of the way of finding ways to work with communities to give them a voice. So you can start to see the threads in my interest. Um, and I, I live in Paikakariki on the Kapiti Coast where we started a radio station 10 years ago, Paikakariki FM, and we have a website platform for our little village called paikakariki.nz. So I'm really passionate about the media and the arts as a platform for that diversity. Um, this project, um, well, we call it the People's Voice as well, was uh, was really inspired by what I think we're missing from the media a little bit now, which were which I think social media has overtaken, which is more uh, citizen based um, media. I think back to the 1990s and City Voice that Simon Collins edited as an example, and of course, there's a grand socialist tradition in People's Voice kind of style newspapers. So the kind of idea was to actually we get flooded. And former media watcher Jeremy Rose, I should mention. That's for correct. This, this That's program. correct. Yeah. So I mean, we get, I feel like I felt like we get flooded and. Um, in, in the media with um, bad news stories when somebody dies and has been left there for, for weeks in a, in a public housing flat or, or the violence. We don't hear the good news stories. Again, those those take a bit of well, flushing Well, totally with the Loafers Lodge disaster because, yeah. you know, as people were pointing out, until there's a problem, these are people who are generally invisible in our media. Yeah, so this, it was coincidental with that, of course. We, we, you know, we worked on this project all of last year, um, and when housing, of course, is such an issue. So I was working with a photographer, David Cook, and a designer, Anna Brown, collaboratively. But what we really wanted to do was actually provide the space for those residents. So we brought together creative contributions from about 30 public housing tenants, you know, and this is from people who, you know, often feel fragile in terms of you know, the security of where they live. But clearly, compared to Loafers Lodge, these guys are the lucky ones. They've got secure tenancies. But there's a lot of movement in that area in terms of trying to uh, look at rent controls um, and uh, the fact that in Wellington City Council, the the housing stock is being put into a separate trust and is going to be looked at independently. There's, there's a lot of tensions and stress around that at the very time we're going through a housing crisis. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a good time to, to be able to bring back the idea of a people's newspaper as a concept um, with David and Anna. And I did go online and check out Pakakariki FM, uh, <laughs> your local station. Your own program on their appreciation, I do know that... You pick an artist, and instead of just picking out a few tunes and playing them, you go. So you even pick artists occasionally that you're not even all that fond of. For example, you did one on Paul McCartney, I think, which which required wow. you to go through many, many, many yes. solo albums over many years and pick yeah, out music I, I, that I, I, you weren't even all that interested. Well, in. I have an adage called "No hits, no misses," and you kind of <laughs> and the idea is to take an artist with a long track record. So sometimes, you know, obviously you tick through the ones that you love, but yeah, I sometimes challenge myself with an artist who's got a long track record that I, you know, I hadn't appreciated. Um, this you, is the hard way of doing it, Mark. You do know that, don't you? <laughs> but the station, rather than buying my own trumpet, I mean, you know, the station is a very much a collective, and we have about 35 shows. We have lots of school radio. Um, we're based in this old school dental clinic in Paikakariki. You know, we have we have 35 plus shows, and there's a collective of people. And I think the media, on a community level, is a really powerful tool. I really believe that the media has an enormous role to play in community resilience, um, particularly as we look at you know issues around emergency management. God, you know, we all know 
this year, the, the role that probably the media was playing in the Hawke's Bay. These things are really vital at that sort of micro or that local level. So local media, and it has been cut significantly in recent decades, I feel that there is real power in communities taking in their own hands and, and running things. That was Mark Amory, RNZ producer and the soon-to-be co-host and co-producer of RNZ's upcoming Weekends Art Show, due to kick off next month here on RNZ National. And as we heard there, Mark Amory turned in his last column this week for the Capital's Daily The Post, reflecting on the quality and quantity of arts coverage and criticism, and his own efforts to diversify the range of critical voices beyond the long-serving Pākehā blokes like himself.